Good morning. So today we're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Hebrews, looking at chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. I've titled this sermon, Warning Against Apostasy. Let's reread the passage for today, starting at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of one or or two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So today's passage can be summarized as follows. The rejection of God's Son and His sacrifice through deliberate, persistent sin will result in judgment without mercy. This is the sin of apostasy. So I can imagine what you're thinking. This isn't what we usually think of when we think of a traditional Christmas message. In fact, I challenge you to find these verses on a mug or motivational poster. My wife pointed out to me how theologian A.W. Pink refers to this passage as the most solemn and fear-inspiring passage in the epistle of Hebrews and perhaps the entire word of God. And yet, this is the truth of God's word, where the beauty of his holiness meets the ugliness of our sin. And it might be tempting to avoid these type of passages when we read things like, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But these words have been divinely included in scripture And because of this, it's important and profitable for us to study and apply. As Charles Spurgeon said, if God has put it in, he's put it in for wise reasons and excellent purposes. So with this in mind, we'll just take a deep breath as we dive into God's word together. Today's passage is actually the fourth and arguably the most severe of the warnings given by the author of Hebrews. It's been several months since we've looked at the previous warnings, so we'll take some time later to review these. But to put the Hebrew warnings in context, let's remind remind ourselves the purpose of the book. Remember that the author of Hebrews is showing the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ's atonement by comparing it to the previous covenant system. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice that has once and all atoned for our sins. We know this to be true because Christ is greater. He's greater than any angel, greater than any priest, greater than any old covenant practice. Nothing else is needed. And in fact, relying on or falling back on the old sacrificial system is not enough. It is now insufficient. The old covenant and its sacrificial system were just a shadow of the greater atonement to come in Christ. The author of Hebrews, he puts it very plainly when earlier in the chapter, in 10 verse 4, it says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But a few verses later, the author reminds us that when Christ was offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So this is the bedrock truth from which we start to look at the warnings that follows in chapter 10. If the appropriate response to Christ's entirely sufficient work of atonement is faithful perseverance, 
What is the inappropriate response and what are the consequences? What are the consequences if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth? But before we look deeper at the warning, the warning from our text this morning, let's have a brief recap of the earlier warnings in Hebrews, um, each of which similarly cautions against the inappropriate response to Christ's work on our behalf. We see an escalation in tone and urgency in each of these warnings, warnings against drifting away from the faith, neglecting our great salvation, and being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and ultimately, willful defiance and rejection of Christ. Looking back at chapter 2, the first warning, we see in verses, chapter, or chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 2 describes what we might call the peril of neglect and warns that if disobedience to the old covenant law brings judgment, how much more severe will, will our judgment be if we neglect the better sacrifice of Christ, if we neglect such a great salvation? Then in chapter 3, we find the second warning which could be summarized as the peril of disobedience. Chapter 3, verse 12 reads, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This warning uses the example of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. The author recounts how the Israelites had fled Egypt and yet hardened their hearts despite seeing God's miraculous provision as he led them out of slavery. As a result, they did not experience the gift of the promised land. This real-life example cautions lest we harden our hearts and fail to enter God's rest. In chapter 6, we see the third and perhaps the well, most well-known of the warnings. Chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This warning describes the privileges of being part of this new covenant community, yet warns if someone has experienced this and turns away, they cannot be restored. With these first three warnings, we see an increasing in severity, and it culminates in the warning from today, where we hear how rejecting the words of Christ to the point of apostasy leads to greater irreversible punishment. Let's look more closely at today's passage. Verse 26 and 27 say, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So this passage starts with a conditional statement. Uh, if this happens, then that will happen type of argument. If we go on sinning deliberately, 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Then it continues, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So it's hard to ignore this threat of judgment and fury of fire. And this naturally leads to the question, what is deliberate sinning? Like, don't we all sin deliberately? Is there such a thing as an accidental sin? When is sinning not deliberate? So to put it plainly, am I at risk of this kind of judgment? Remember 1 John 1.8 tells us, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So it's clear as Christians, we will continue in sin and that God has promised to forgive us for this. So then how then do we reconcile this with the statement that if we go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins? Well, Deliberately is the key word. In fact, some translations use willingly instead of deliberately, but both words work. To get a better understanding of the meaning intended, we can see how the first word is, or so how the same word is used in 1 Peter 5:2 in a positive sense when he encourages church leaders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Here we see it's the same word, and it's translated willingly. And in this context, it's suggesting a wholehearted, enthusiastic participation. Equally important is the phrase, go on sinning. This also implies an intentionality, a pattern of repeated, purposeful sin. This verse is describing the deliberate turning away from God. So while all sin is done, while all sin is done willfully or deliberately, this particular case, it's describing a more intentional, eager, wholehearted act of the will. This is the sin of apostasy. So we should next define apostasy, because definitions are important. And I found that this is a word that gets used a lot. And for such a serious idea, it's a word that needs to be used appropriately. In this case, we can define apostasy as the complete renunciation of the Christian faith, the full abandonment of Christ. So with this warning, the author is describing a clear, deliberate sin. This is sinning to the point of rejecting Christ's sacrifice. The strongest language possible is then used to confirm the severity of this sin and the justification for the judgment that follows. Directly from our text, we see it described as trampling the Son of God, profaning the covenant by which we are sanctified, and outraging the spirit of grace. How can we not be appalled by these words? How can we not be horrified by the trivialization and the ultimate dismissal of the atoning work of Christ? And if we're not appalled, we should probably ask ourselves why. Hebrews tells us that in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. If Christ is God's final revelation, who completed the work of atonement and is the perfect sacrifice by his obedient suffering and death on the cross, to trample the Son of God underfoot is to renounce the Son, to reject God. And in renouncing the Son, we profane the blood of his perfect covenant. We dismiss the suffering on our behalf and we have disdain for his shed blood. We scorn and disregard the living sacrifice made for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And as Christ's blood is the only way to achieve forgiveness of our sins, rejection of that leaves no other option to avoid punishment. And in rejecting Christ, we outrage the spirit of grace. We insult, we offend, and we stir to anger the Holy Spirit, the very part of the Godhead that acts as the witness to Christ's work on the cross and a witness to the new covenant, writing the law of God on our hearts and our minds. The Spirit is the one responsible for our new heart in salvation, and rejecting Christ means outraging the Spirit. You'll notice that the author includes himself in this warning, uses the pronoun we, for if we go on sinning deliberately. Apostasy, it's not a sin committed in ignorance. It's done by those who've received the knowledge of truth. This is a warning to people who have, this is not a warning to people who have never heard the gospel. It's a warning to those who have received the knowledge of truth, those that may even include themselves as Christ's followers. These are strong and disturbing words, and it's painful to consider that anyone would be willing to trample our Savior, the very Son of God, deliberately profane the sacrifice of his blood, or to think that one would intentionally outrage the spirit of grace. If we're not stirred by these words, we need to ask ourselves, have our hearts grown indifferent to the glory of Christ? So the very purpose of these warnings in Hebrews, as we'll discuss in more detail, is to encourage us to persevere in faith, to point our hearts and our minds to the beauty and glory of our Savior, to guard against apathy and indifference and, that, and the progressive road to apostasy. And then you might ask yourself, how could someone who knows and truly understands the gospel turn away from it? Unfortunately, this isn't a new idea, and it is well described in Scripture. Jesus himself gives us an example of this type of person in Matthew 13, in the parable of the sower, where he uses the example of seeds to represent the good news of the gospel. Jesus explains in the parable how different people will respond to hearing the gospel. One of his examples is of seeds falling on the path where birds come in to devour them. It's explained that these are people who hear the word of God and were told, even receive it with joy. And they may endure for a while, but then when tribulation or persecution comes, they fall away. Another example in the same parable is the seeds that fall on the rocky ground. They start to grow, but eventually without the soil, the roots wither and die under the sun. These are people who hear the word, but the cares of the word world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. This parable shows how people can hear the gospel and even respond in a positive way for a while and yet ultimately succumb to the world. Perhaps the clearest example of this in scripture is Jesus's disciple Judas. This is a man who heard Jesus's voice, was taught at his feet, witnessed his miracles, traveled and ate with him, even embraced him as rabbi. Judas is the tragic example of someone who had knowledge of the truth but lacked true faith and a repentant heart. It's hard to imagine, but this was the man who would ultimately betray Jesus. This intentional rejection after knowing the truth is the definition of apostasy, the specific sin that the author of Hebrews is warning against. In chapter 10, the author continues to build on the severity of the sin of apostasy by using what is called an a fortiori argument, or a how much more. This is something that we've seen used throughout the book of Hebrews. An example of this would be uh, how much more upset 
or how, if your brother was mad that you damaged his bike, how much more upset will you be if, you're, if you damaged or if you smashed your parents' car? So this is comparing a lesser with a greater uh, event to make a point. Verse 28 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? We're challenged to consider that if someone sets aside the law of Moses, which is the inferior covenant system, and is sentenced to death without mercy, how much worse will, will the punishment be for he who rejects the Son of God under the new superior covenant? If we look closely at the law of Moses, we do see a distinction between sins committed inadvertently for which the sacrificial system could atone, and those against the law of Moses for which no attack or atoning sacrifice was adequate. The Hebrew audience reading this letter would have known this. And the author, they're likely referencing Numbers 15, where Moses writes about a high-handed sin, a sin for which no, there was no sacrifice, only death without mercy. So using the author's a fortiori argument, if breaking the law by which angel, spoken by angels deserved death, how much more does apostasy against Jesus Christ deserve judgment? How can we expect to receive forgiveness if we turn our back on the one who provides the forgiveness? God makes clear the consequences of apostasy. And I, can, and I think we can see that those who persist in sin and totally reject Christ have no other option for sacrifice for sins. The original Hebrew readers might have been tempted to fall back on the old covenant practices and animal sacrifices, but with the knowledge of Christ, and this is no longer an option. To receive the knowledge of truth and then reject it is to give up the only way of salvation. No further sacrifice is left. In this whole passage, it ends with very powerful truths describing God's holiness and judgment. Remembering the Hebrew audience, the passage concludes with God saying, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. These are actually quotes out of the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. These are divine words recorded by Moses before his death. They would have been memorized by the Israelites, recording the great faithfulness of God in preserving his nation, but also predicting their turning to idols as they headed for the promised land and warning of his judgment. In quoting Moses' song, the readers of Hebrews are reminded that even God's own people are not exempt from the law. These are hard verses, and the honest truth is that this whole passage will become, come across as harsh to many people, because I suspect we don't often think about God this way. But the author clearly understands how God's holiness and divine urgency when dealing with eternal salvation. So how can we not take these verses seriously when we're reminded it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So this brings us to the application. How should we respond to this and the other warnings that we see in Hebrews? Now, it's possible to approach these warnings from two potentially dangerous positions. On one hand, we can take these warnings too lightly, dismissing them as irrelevant to those who have heard and understood the truth, but never searching our own hearts for the fruits of salvation looking for the evidence that we hold our original confidence firm to the end. On the other hand, it can be approached by true believers 
who can be paralyzed by fear at the thought of a tenuous relationship with God, always teetering on the brink of losing one's salvation. These are challenging verses, and it's fair to acknowledge that there is a tension, a tension we see throughout Hebrews, a tension in taking comfort in the knowledge of Christ as the ultimate and sufficient Redeemer versus the warning to respond appropriately, to remain faithful and persevere or face consequences. There's been a great deal of ink spilt by very sincere Christians trying to accurately interpret and explain these warnings. They're asking the questions like, who is the intended audience and what are the actual consequences of these warnings? Historically, different theologians have come to different conclusions with this and the other warnings in Hebrews. And it's fair to acknowledge that there have been several viewpoints proposed that can fall into Orthodox Christianity. Of the more commonly held interpretations, The first possibility is that these warnings are talking about Christians who could lose their salvation. This would be the Arminian teaching. And we'll come back to this. The second possibility is that these warnings, they're talking about a loss of rewards, and they're not even talking about salvation. A third option is perhaps that the author is referring to people who, while they have the knowledge of the gospel and perhaps even profess to be Christians, they're not truly saved. And finally, another possibility is that these warnings are intended for true believers not to predict a loss of their salvation, but working as God-ordained means of preserving them. This final view, this was a view proposed by Pastor Jude when he addressed the previous warnings, and I encourage you to revisit his sermon from February 13th of this year. So what are we to make of these possibilities? And I think the big question that people are thinking or maybe struggling with is, can a Christian lose their salvation? Is there a sin or a list of sins that would forever separate me from God? So when asking this question, it's helpful to look at the bigger picture of Scripture as a whole. And I want to take a step back and reassure people that the Bible is clear on the fact that one cannot lose their salvation. Scripture provides many assurances that God will keep his own. Jesus himself says in John 39 to 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Later, in John 10, verse 25, Jesus says about believers, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And in Romans 8, 38, For I'm sure that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 8.15, we're given the analogy of adoption into God's family. And what a comforting picture of the permanence and completeness of this covenant. So this is all very powerful imagery that reassures us that God is faithful to save. Even within Hebrews, there is insurance and encouragement. We've seen how God is faithful to fulfill his promises. Christ's sacrifice is described as a once-for-all perfect and eternal work. So I want people to take solace in knowing that ultimately, the believer's security is in the hands of God. And we can confidently say, as in Hebrews 13... As God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man can do to me.
we should base our assurance of salvation on the promises he's declared throughout Scripture. Not even you can take away God's gift of salvation. Our eternal security is based on God's love for those whom he has redeemed. It is purchased by Christ, promised by the Father, and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Theologian Louis Burkhoff writes, It is, strictly speaking, not man, but God who perseveres. Perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes his work that believers continue to stand to the very end. But that does bring us back to the question, how can we harmonize the idea of God's assurance of salvation against the warnings that suggest if one fails to persevere, they'll perish? I like how Thomas Schreiner approaches this topic. This is someone who Pastor Jude has mentioned previously. I think his application is useful, and it provides a practical way to read these messages as believing, persevering Christians while still remaining confident in God's salvific work. In his book, The Race Set Before Us, A Biblical Theology of Perseverance and Assurance, Schreiner describes how these warning passages can be seen as road signs to help those who are truly saved remain faithful. A road sign, it cautions against conceivable consequences, not probable consequences. It's conceivable that your car could veer off a cliff and fall down, <coughs> fall down to, to the bottom of the mountain, and yet this is not probable, particularly if you heed the road sign to stay clear of the edge. In the same way, the warnings of Hebrews prevent present severe and obvious consequences to the rejection of God. And in hearing these warnings, as with a road sign, we're directed to stay on the narrow path. Remember, a sign on the road warning of hazards is not meant to frighten or even question one's ability to drive. We shouldn't be paralyzed by the fear of the loss of salvation when we read these passages. Instead, these warnings or signs are to instruct the driver to stay on the road. These warnings are meant to continue to direct us after our initial call of the gospel. They remind us to be faithful to Jesus Christ, both pointing out the narrow pathway to salvation and clearly marking the wide road to to destruction. As Schreiner says, they speak of things conceivable or imaginable, not things likely to happen. The road sign serves as a means of of us staying safely on the road just as the warnings are one of the ways that encourage us to persevere in the faith. Charles Spurgeon uses a very similar analogy of a child who's getting close to the edge of a cliff. He's being warned not to get any closer. He says, My child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? He says, Father, keep me, hold thou me up, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to a greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution, because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands far away from that great gulf, because he knows that if he were to fall into it, there would be no salvation for him. Heeding the warnings of Hebrews drives us into the arms of Christ. There's no doubt this is a challenging passage. It's talking about judgment and terrifying consequences. But understanding the inappropriate response to Christ's atonement and the ultimate consequences of this spurs us on to continue on the path of salvation. I think these verses are intended for believers as God-ordained means of perseverance. So as believers, we don't need to be fearful, but we do need to take heed to follow God's instruction, 
and be grateful that we will stay on the road. In the end, the application from today is actually it's quite simple. We need to examine ourselves and determine if we have placed our faith in Jesus with a repentant heart. And if this is not something you have done, I encourage you to do this today. God, in his holiness, demands a sacrifice. But this has been fulfilled with the new covenant, with Christ as the perfect sacrifice. This is promised as a once and for all. Knowing the truth of what we've been saved from, can be, we can be even more grateful for the good news that we will persevere because of him. Knowing that God, in his perfect holiness, is faithful to complete the good work within us. Let's pray. Father, as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, you've given us a perfect sacrifice, but we've also seen how it's possible to hear the gospel and not respond to it. We've seen the seriousness of rejecting you. Please soften our hearts and help us to use these warnings to bring us closer to you and to respond appropriately to your greatness, to your glory, and to your grace. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.